Hello, uh, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at uh, more writings from the American Civil War from the second year, the second volume of the anthology by the Library of America. And the documents in this episode um, will we'll focus pretty much entirely on the Seven Days Battles and, and some surrounding events. So if you... Uh, know your Civil War history, uh, it's really the first really major campaign in the Eastern Theater uh, where McClellan took this army that was all built up at, at the end of 1861 and early 62. Uh, he launched this grand campaign, but he delayed and finally he, he got going and the campaign was basically to like land in uh, this peninsula south southeast of Richmond and then march up and seize Richmond there kind of bypassing the Confederate forces that were kind of up around Washington um, while keeping troops there to defend Washington. That was the, the main, main, main strategy, and McClellan thought this would be a much more effective way to come at Richmond than to go through um, straight on from the north. Um, and, of course, the campaign was a failure, although the the battles were, were mixed. I mean, the, the so-called seven-day battles, and those weren't the only battles of the campaign, but that's the highlight of it, was like seven battles over seven days and... Uh, some pretty bloody battles, major losses by the by both sides, particularly Confederate losses were incredibly high. Um, they lost a commander, um, uh, Johnston, Joseph Joseph Johnson, who was the commander of the army at the time, and his him being wounded. He was he wasn't killed, but his, him being wounded allowed Robert E. Lee to take over. And when he took over, he you know did a launch these attacks that that basically scared McClellan enough that he withdrew from the campaign and leading to a failure. And then there'd be a series of battles in the aftermath of this in, in Northern Virginia, like, uh, you know, second, the second battle of Bull Run is maybe the most important of those, but it all culminates in Antietam and the Emancipation Proclamation, all really important events. So it, it certainly was a frustrating campaign for Lincoln and it led to, you know, this, this movement to get rid of McClellan as just someone didn't really have the stomach for this. Right. Um, now I don't know who's right here. Um, I guess what I've read, it tend to be hot, you know, the stuff I've read with the civil war tend to be critical of McClellan for like sitting on his hands and not really being aggressive enough, but you know, I'm sure he did a pretty good job compared to what most of us would have done. Um, I don't know. He said a few more thousand troops would have done it. I, I mean that, I don't know, but, uh, in any case, the the campaign was a failure, largely because these Confederate attacks, which usually they were repulsed with heavier casualties for the Confederates than for the Union, and the Union army was larger, but the Confederate army was, I think, at its peak, at least the Army of Northern Virginia was at its peak at this time, you know, 80, 90 or 100,000 men, and the McClellan had a slightly more than that, um, so, you know, I don't know if it would have been possible for the campaign to be successful in any sense knowing what the war would become and what how you know that the days of like napoleonic one strike you know coup de gras on the opponent's armies that seemed to have been over and that wasn't how this war was going to be fought and this is something mcclellan actually speaks of at the end of the campaign as we'll see so anyways uh, a lot of these documents and this this uh readings the stuff i read for this week i had down to once a week uploads that's that's sad Maybe I'll pick it up again, but it doesn't seem likely. I'm just so depressed after work, you know? Hard to always do this. 
But anyways, most of the documents here surround the, you know, different witnesses to these battles. Um, there's some other interesting things we need to talk about too. So the first, uh, the first document is from May, uh, mid-May 1862 by John B. Jones, who's the War Department uh, clerk uh, for the Confederates. And he's actually quite pessimistic. He, he thinks that Richmond's going to fall. Um, or at least there's a, there's a threat to Richmond. I guess he, there's some optimism here at some points, but he does... Um, he is talking about how there's fears that that that, that the capital is going to fall. Writes, for instance, uh, um, we await the issue before Richmond. It is still believed by many that it is the intention of the government and the generals to evacuate the city. If the enemy were to appear in force on the south side, another force were to march on us from Fredericksburg, we should be inevitably taken in the event of a loss of a battle, an event I don't anticipate. So he's saying, I don't think they're going to lose the battle, but but who knows, you know, it, it could happen. The forces seem to be there for, a, for a, a blow. But I think he's just as wrong as McClellan, in a way, in seeing this as a, these war, this war is a one-shot thing. It wasn't going to be. It was going to be a war of where the, the enemy had to be completely defeated uh, in the battlefield repeatedly, and the land seized, you know, and bit by bit broken down. <clears throat> So that's that. He does talk about how some of uh, some people were refusing to leave their homes and stuff, holding out um, to Eve, despite the Union Army coming. Anyway, so next we have uh, um, uh, Garland H. White writing to Edwin M. Stanton. We have, there's actually a couple interesting letters to Stanton in in what I've read for this 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 time this episode um, and one is really great we'll, when we get to it I'll, I'll talk I'll come back to that this is Garland H. White was an escaped slave um, who fled to Canada and he actually is saying I want to join the war so this idea that arming black soldiers wasn't just a military necessity but something that was brought about by the actions of of former slaves and, and free blacks throughout the north to really, uh, you know, make it an issue, I think is significant. And, you know, one letter is just a reflection of this overall um, issue. But, you know, he volunteers himself um, to this. He actually says, a black regiment headed by the Reverend Garnold H. White offers their services in protection of the southern forts during the sickly season. Um, now, eventually, this guy would become a chaplain in in a colored infantry unit, the 28th U.S. Colored Infantry, which he helped recruit. So, you know, it wasn't just, oh, we're going to allow black soldiers, then it was white officers who recruited them. Um, you know, that's kind of how it's shown in that movie Glory, uh, and that's true to a point. But, you know, there's also black regiments put together by black civic leaders and local leaders and, and through their own initiative. And I think that's significant. Another document I really like in this this grain is uh, is from May 1862, which is Abraham Lincoln revoking General Hunter's Emancipation Order. So he was an anti-slavery commander in South Carolina and Georgia. Hunter was, and he actually basically freed the slaves there. And this we've seen other examples of this, where um, like Farragut 
where officers on the field just said, you know, the Contraband Act says this is contraband of war, and we're actually going to go farther and we're going to liberate this, that these rebels don't have any right to this property anymore, and where we control, we're going to free the slaves. And Lincoln was worried about this because at the time, as we saw last episode, he was pushing for emancipated or compensated emancipation in the border states. He didn't want them to be upset. He thought the war could be won or lost on that issue. At one point, he even says uh, compensated emancipation would end the war more quickly because it would show there's no future for slavery. There was just kind of this belief that if the South really believed slavery was done, they would stop fighting. Um, True or not, I don't know. Uh, they certainly fought to the end well after the Emancipation Proclamation was passed. Um, so, but this is Lincoln uh, rescinding his his Emancipation Decree, which I guess is not, isn't so wild. But the fact that this this officer took it on himself to to free the slaves, I think, is a significant point. He takes time though not to like scold Hunter. He says like we're just well, how do I, I beg of you a calm and enlarged consideration of them ranging if it may be far above the personal and partisan politics this proposal makes common cause for a common object casting no reproaches upon any it acts not the pharisee the change it contemplates would come gently as the dews of heaven not rendering or wrecking anything will you not embrace it so much good has not been done by one effort in all the past time as in the province of god it is now your high privilege to do so. May the vast future not have to lament that you have neglected it. And so he's really kind of holding out his hand saying, you know, help me with this longer project. Put aside your immediate needs, uh, your immediate desires to free the slaves here. And let's let's we'll get there at some point. I think it's a pretty strong document that's suggesting Lincoln moving towards emancipation. Which isn't that far away, right? The Battle of Antietam is summer of later of September maybe of, of 62 um, next what do we have Richard Taylor uh, he wrote this book called destruction and reconstruction um, and this is just a, like a memoir this is another one of those memoir pieces and this is about him meeting uh, Stonewall Jackson so this guy is actually the son of, of President Zachary Taylor and he was a general uh, so he's he wrote this memoir later and in it he talks about meeting general jackson i think this is in the aftermath of that shenandoah valley campaign because that's right before the seven like he comes at the start of the seven days battles with these troops after that campaign i think that's the timeline and helps win those seven days battles for for the confederates but you know he was kind of late like, you know, in a couple of the battles, so they weren't as effective as, as Lee thought they could have been. Uh, again, I think all these uh, plans of uh, a knockout blow is just delusional. I don't think that's how this war was going to be fought. It was much more World War One becoming a one World War I style a war of attrition or whatever. Um, but he just talks about meeting um, Jackson. Of course, Jackson is kind of an odd cat, right? He had all these weird quirks and uh, weird... Uh, opinions and, and behaviors and stuff and some of that is hinted at here but not too much it's not too personal it's, it's more just about him meeting him in uh, in the context of, of of military activities so that's that um, next uh, Elizabeth Blair Lee to Samuel Philip Lee a letter 
So she's kind of important. Elizabeth Blair Lee's uh, father was um, Francis Preston Blair, right? And he's a major Republican. He was an advisor to Lincoln. Um, his brother was Lincoln's postmaster general, uh, Montgomery Blair. So these are this is a pretty well-connected family. Now, Samuel Phillips Lee is serving in the Mississippi at the time when this letter was written. And this letter is speaking of kind of from the point of view of Washington. I mean, she just talks about some of the troop movements she witnesses, some of the impact of Jackson's Shenandoah campaign, um, <clears throat> things like that. Some personal uh, affairs, too, which are always interesting to read about how these families, reading how these families kind of came to terms with the war. So um, that's that. Uh, the next one's great. The... <clears throat> Uh, the next document here, Thomas O. Moore. It's a to the people of Louisiana. So he's the governor. So I don't know how this worked with the with with Butler when he took over New Orleans, because presumably the governor was a, or yeah, the the governor of Louisiana was a, a secessionist, right? So was he kept in some kind of symbolic power? I don't know, because he still talked about here. Uh, he must have. He's writing from the executive office to the people of Louisiana, so he must still be be governor so the context here is like I, this is kind of a famous event i guess uh where butler was experiencing this problem with the women of of louisiana like harassing union soldiers on the streets which i, I guess that's pretty common that kind of stuff's pretty common in occupations and butler kind of flipped out about this and and said he wrote he wrote a proclamation and it's this as the officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women calling themselves ladies of New Orleans in return for the most scandalous non-interference and courtesy on our part, it is ordered that hereafter, when any female shall by word, gesture, or motion insult or show contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States, she shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman in the town of the town plying her avocations. So that's the rule. What I mean... The, the key word is that last phrase here. It's like these women will be treated essentially as prostitutes for doing and punished as prostitutes, which is kind of uh, bad politics. Certainly it's fairly harsh. It's, um, you know, I'm not overly sympathetic with these women, but nevertheless, it seems a very odd way to word the proclamation to crack down on these women. And so the response to it was not just, oh, this is union tyranny. Um, as you might expect, but also like this is a insult to our ladies, right? You're you're essentially calling them um, prostitutes. So, and then so Moore replies, "It is thus proclaimed to the world that the exhibition of any disgust or repulsiveness by the women of New Orleans to the hated invaders of their home, the slayers of their fathers, brothers, and husbands, shall constitute a justification to a brutal soldiers to a brutal soldiery for their indulgence of their lust." The commanding general from his headquarters announces to the his insolent followers that they are at liberty to treat us women of the town, the wives, the mothers, and daughters of our citizens, if by word and gesture or movement or any contempt is indicated for their persons or insult inferred by their presence. Now, you don't, it doesn't seem Butler was saying, like, treat them as prostitutes and have sex with them or rape them. That doesn't seem to, I doubt that's, that's not his intention, right? His intention is maybe round them up, arrest them. You know, throw the book at them if necessary. Um, but how it gets interpreted is as, you know, you're going to rape our women. Of course, 
that's such a running motif in like the southern logic it comes up in like the you know the in reconstruction era with the anti-reconstruction government violence and stuff it's this idea that free black men are going to violate our women and we need to protect them and certainly the race riots of the jim crow era was always framed in those terms and ida b wells wrote that wonderful book on lynching where she really digs into the sexual politics of this and what's going on in the white mind and their obsession with their 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 i'm putting in quotes here their women um of course the whole thing is resting on this assumption that the women are theirs and to be owned and their bodies to be controlled by white men um or in this case southern men it's it's a wild document though um worth checking out really um not the most interesting one here for for my money but oh uh, pretty pretty great um then we have uh lord palmerston to adams the ambassador charles francis adams uh and this is found i think in benjamin this is found in benjamin moore's journal so we or we got a journal entry and this letter maybe it's we got the two different documents but um this is actually a, the british f seeing this law butler's rule and it outraged even the british that's the point here and adams was kind of thrown off guard by this and he had to sort of def you know he didn't really know what to say uh when the story kind of came became public and he was he sort of has to own it as the diplomat in in london so that's another interesting document that that connects to that butler um butler law butler proclamation in new orleans all right so moving on we have uh the battle of fair oaks so th this i don't think is part of the seven days battle it's it's not it's but it's the first major battle of this peninsular campaign sometimes called seven pines these battles always have different names north and south unfortunately i'll try to go by the northern names but what a bloody battle six thousand confederates lost uh killed wounded or missing and i read some of this missing um I guess POWs part of it, and, uh, but some just died. I, I mean, I think some of them are just bodies that were never found, right? Literally missing. Um, it's maybe you have to take a closer look at the statistics of these battles. I'm sure there are people who are experts on this, but you know, I recently read an article that said that old estimate of 600,000 dead in the Civil War is too low. It's it might be as much as 300,000 more uh, people died in the Civil War, and just because we don't have the records and people are just missing and we don't know what happened to everyone and you know people died of disease and and people died of their wounds later and and just the death toll of the war is higher than we predicted so this these statistics like killed wounded or missing it's it's rather academic and this is like sounds like a statistician is making these and sometimes when i read these civil war histories when i was a kid you know i was, I was looking at the body counts of these battles right but the reality there's more fog of war here going on than i than i thought than, than i thought at the time but anyways the union lost five thousand so you know that's i think pretty common in these set these peninsular campaign battles where the confederates lost more but mccullen like withdrew uh after the battles so anyways we got henry ropes here writing to william ropes um from the 20th massachusetts he's a lieutenant in the 20th massachusetts and he's talking about his time in the battlefield and he, he experienced some pretty heavy fighting his company lost 30 men 
in the battle. So he's right in the thick of it, but he's, you know, he's actually describing the experience of battle, which is great stuff. Um, the noise, the chaos, the steadfastness of the men in the face of this disorder. It's, 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 it's a great document. Now, uh, one major Confederate loss in that battle was uh, Joseph Johnson. Uh, and so command falls to Robert E. Lee. And so our next document is Robert E. Lee writing, writing to Jefferson Davis in June 1862, talking about his plan to assault the Union, to attack the Union forces, to get them to withdraw. And it works. I guess it works. This might be his, like, one really successful campaign in, in, in like, in a strategic sense, right? I guess you have ba the Battle of... The battle, what's the one before Gettysburg? Chancellorsville, which was kind of a really amazing tactical victory, but it didn't really win anything. Um, you know, I don't know where Lee's fame comes from, actually, but you know, I think this campaign in AB is, is part of the reason for it. All right, so now we get to the document I really liked, um, which I th for me is kind of the, the heart of this this stuff, even though it's not connected to the Seven Days Battles directly. And that is David Hunter to Ed, Edwin M. Stanton. Remember Hunter? Uh, he's the guy who got, who uh, Lincoln told him not to organize, not to free the slaves. Well, he goes ahead and starts organizing slave regiments uh, in, down in there in the Gulf Coast somewhere. Oh no, this is down in Georgia. He, uh, at the same time, other people are doing it in the Gulf Coast. So they're actually beginning to recruit these black regiments. And uh, and Stanton says, no, don't do that. And and he writes back this letter, which is wonderful. He's like, let's just really read part of it. Because he, 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 of course, I think he follows orders eventually. But he, he basically says, you're full of shit, um, Stanton. You know what we're, this is about and what we're trying to do. And this is... and." You're totally confused about this. You're just wrong, and I think you know you're wrong about that. And I'm going to show you up. So this is uh, someone talking back to his like commander, right, the Secretary of War. Pretty boldly, listen to this. To the first question, therefore, I reply that no regiment of fugitive slaves has been or is being organized in this department. There is, however, a fine regiment of persons whose late masters are fugitive rebels, men who everywhere fly before the appearance of the national flag leaving their servants behind them to shift as best they can for themselves. So far indeed are the loyal persons composing this regiment from seeking to avoid the presence of their late owners. That they are now, once and all, working with remarkable industry to place themselves in a position to go into full and effective pursuit of their fugacious and traitorous proprietors. End quote. He's like, these aren't fugitive slaves. Those are fugitive rebels. These people are loyal and we should mobilize them and his letter goes on with this and he actually made, then kind of moves away from the pathos and the rhetoric and says look we're doing something these regiments are going to work and they're effective and they've, they've been successful and he, he kind of tries to demonstrate that so he says we should keep doing this and of course eventually they do it, it, it comes to pass um what do we got next uh kate stone from her journal from June 29th to July 50th. Uh, this, this is a woman, a young woman, 21 years old, at the time near Vicksburg. And already kind of the Vicksburg campaign is already getting sort of started, even though it wouldn't be fully completed until 
of course, the same time with the Battle of Gettysburg, so about a year later. But uh, she's seen Union troops kind of uh, moving up and down the Mississippi without much uh, um, opposition. Um, she talks about New Orleans and the tyranny of Butler, who, of course, had a very bad reputation in the Southern press. Um, but the key thing here is, is this, where she writes, the Yankees have taken the Negroes off all the places below Omega. The Negroes generally going most willingly, being promised their freedom by the Vandals. Um, and she also talks about uh, like her fear of former slaves and these freedmen coming back to burn their homes and, and all that. And that's, you know, the news of Virginia being worrisome. Um, the freeing of slaves around them in the West and the anxiety about what that's going to mean is, is I think, one reason many Southern women stopped supporting the war um, because they, they feared for their lives and their livelihood and wanted men back to their farms on and on. So um, I think there's a, a deeper context to this uh, letter, which is full of anxiety and torment. All right, the next document... I don't want to say too much about it. It's Edward Porter Alexander. He was a Confederate officer. He wrote a memoir later. Um, drafted in 1897, not published till 1989. It's called Fighting for the Confederacy. Um, so I think there's a lot of military history here that might be useful to historians of that. But this is his... Um, just his notes on the, on the Seven Days Battle. Um, more or less. And he talked a lot about Jackson's uh, um, movements and Lee's tactics. There's a lot of focus on tactics here and and Lee's achievements and, and some of his defects of these people. So he, he's far enough away from it that he's, he's being fairly objective, um, I think. But it's still such a... It's just such a... The more I read this stuff, it's I just find it such a weird perspective. And I guess people read this stuff, right? Like these military histories where everything is about but movements on a map and move these troops here and this troops there and, and, and whatever. And that's part of war, I guess. But it's not the most interesting part of war at all to me. And you get a lot of it here. But he does quote from some original sources. So it's, uh, you know, I think this might be worth checking out if you want, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, now, Alexander was famous for the artillery barrage at Gettysburg like, uh, before the Confederate assault on the third day. Um, but anyways, that's what we're going to get. A lot, of, a lot of the documents now are these kind of memoirs or witnesses to the Seven Days Battles, and they're of various um, interest. Uh, so I, I'm, honestly, I'm going to skip some of them, um, and I'm going to jump to maybe some that are more historically significant. Uh, one is George B. McClellan writing to Edwin Stanton. And he this is early on in the Seven Days Battles, and he's already made the decision early on to withdraw. So it's just basically a, it's a the decision was made very, very early on. Um, but he's blaming the Department of War. You know, you think why he got fired. Well, some of it has to do with this, right? He, he says, you know, if you were to just give me 10,000 more men, I could have done this, which kind of sounds like, hogwash to me um i don't buy it but he's shifting blame which doesn't make him look very good to be honest i know a few thousand men would have changed this battle from a defeat to a victory as it is the government must not and cannot hold me responsible for the result 
Well, don't be the commanding general of, of the army if you're going to shift the blame, I guess. And maybe there is blame to go around. Maybe McClellan's not totally wrong. I don't know. But it doesn't make him look good. And, you know, politically, it doesn't seem a very wise letter to have written. And then next we have Lincoln's letter to William Seward, um, the Secretary of State. And this is a good letter um, where we have some general strategy questions, but I think the ending is important. Where he says, I expect to maintain this contest until successful or until I die, or I'm conquered, or my term expires, or Congress or the country forsakes me, and I would publicly appeal to the country for this new force, were it not that I fear a general panic and stampede would follow. So hard is it to have a thing understood as it really is, end quote. So a couple of things here. One is his determination to fight. The second is like the political realities that he is uh, could be voted out shortly. And there was real concern about that. Lincoln thought he might not win the 64 election, and that's not far away at this point. So he's... Uh, um, and then the politics of raising another army, that will be required to win the war. It's... Uh, you know, an, an unfortunate reality for him. Um, so we have a couple more memoirs of the battles, which I'm going to skip over by different participants in them. You know, North and South. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to spend as much time on those going forward just because they're... I don't know what to say about them sometimes. War is hell, certainly. And most of these documents don't convince me otherwise. But they're... You know, they're going to be of interest of certain people. This next one, though, did, did pique my interest, and that was Sally Brock writing from, from a book she wrote called uh, Richmond, uh, oh, By a Richmond Lady in 1867. It was anonymously published, but it later revealed it was written by Sally Brock. And this is just about the death. I mean, these seven-day battles were super bloody, like thousands of people wounded or dead every day day after day i mean it's like really modern warfare type of conditions and they're going back to richmond and the richmond's just full of these wounded and dead um young and old and everyone and just the you know every family quote, every family received the bodies of the wounded or dead of their friends and every house was a house of mourning or a private hospital the sounds of death the funeral constant funerals all these things were such a real part of life for Richmond and it's, it's amazing they're able to maintain the war effort given that experience I guess maybe they shouldn't have similarly we have Sarah Agnes Pryor uh, who was a nurse um, her husband was a former US and Confederate congressman but he served in Lee's army so it's another Confederate point of view Pryor served as a nurse in Richmond and then she wrote a memoir in 1904 talking about her experience as a nurse and there's good stuff in this document about uh, just the suffering and the, the the horror of the horrors of of war and what these women had to go through again day in and day out as these battles went on some nice little moments too in this document even though it is kind of gruesome uh, quote ambulances began to come in and unload at the door I soon had occupation enough and a few drops of camphor on my handkerchief tied me over the worst. The wounded men crowded in and sat patiently waiting their turn. One fine little fellow of 15 unrolled a handkerchief from his wrist to show me his wound. There's a bullet in there, he said proudly. It isn't going to have to... I'm going to have to cut it off and then go straight back to the fight. 
isn't it lucky it's my left hand? Unquote. So, you know, a nice little moment of a man kind of showing his, his bravery at the, you know, in, to the nurses, I, I guess, is how I sort of read that. Um, you know, don't want to show cowardly, you know, he's like, I'm going right back out there as soon as I can. Um, all right. Um, so now we're going to sort of wrap up. Um, uh, we got uh, just a few more documents that talk about the aftermath of the Seven Days battles. Um, one here is uh, back to General Hunter's uh, Black Soldiers experiment, um, which was shut down. It sounded like it was promising, but it was sort of shut down. Um, but this became a debate in Washington. So this is by Whitelaw Reed, who's like correspondent for the Cincinnati Gazette. And he's talking about the debate in Washington over recruiting black soldiers and how some people were really, really fiercely against it. But others like Thaddeus Stevens, like we got to do this and it's crucial. It's a, it's a justice issue. Uh, quote, how come? And then also it's like militarily brilliant quote. How does it come that they are so dangerous to their masters when a single cannon shot will put 10,000 to flight? Uh, end quote. You know, so if black soldiers are, the, the, the argument is like they won't last in battle. They'll run away. And that is even like, then why are these masters so afraid of them if, if they're not able, they don't have any metal? Which was a good point. And of course, they proved to be some of the best soldiers in the, in the, the army when they finally were mobilized. Uh, next, we have McClellan's kind of excuse to uh, Abraham Lincoln. His, he's kind of, I guess he sort of thinks he's going to be fired uh, at this point. That's, how I, that's the context of this letter, as I understand it. So he kind of uh, talks not only about defending himself, but he, he does it a little fatalistically, or he thinks he's going to be killed in battle or something. He's got these like, Napoleonic complexes, obviously. Um, but he also talks about like when I'm gone, how to wage the war, and he's right and he's wrong. On the one hand, he says like this is a war; it's not a rebellion. It's it's a war, and it's going to be fought to the bloody end. But because of that, we can't treat it as a revolution. We can't treat it. We can't use it to implement social reforms. And I think what Lincoln understood is to win the war, you have to have the revolution. We have to end slavery to to win the war. And McClellan is saying, no, let's separate these two things. Right? They're, they're separate issues. And we need to focus on winning the war, not get bogged down in other, other things, dis dispersed kind of foci, I guess. Quote, military power should not be allowed to interfere with the relations of servitude. Slaves contraband under the act of Congress seeking military protection should receive it. The right of the government to appropriate permanently to its own service, blah, blah, blah. And he's against that. He's like, okay, contraband is one thing, but don't free them. Um, so, uh, what do we have next? Oh, we got a little bit here about the build, the christianing of the CSS Alabama, which was like a blockade, uh, runner, pretty famous one during the war. Um, then we have in July, 1862, Abraham Lincoln appealing to the border state Congress people, congressmen, uh, to support compensated emancipation. Again, he's making the argument that like, if we can take slavery off the table, at least in the border states, we're going to be that much closer to winning the war. Um, and he said, like, that's why you should support it. But um, they didn't fully support it. They didn't, even though the policies were passed, they didn't really take up on taking that money. And then the final document here is the Second Confiscation Act, which 
uh, basically strengthened the right of, of military officers to seize slaves from people uh, who were not only actively in rebellion, but who aided the rebellion. So it kind of expanded who was subject to this. And again, this is, I guess this wasn't used as much as the first Confiscation Act, but it's uh, the trickling towards emancipation, which we see throughout this, this volume in particular. So, all right, that's, that's all I want to say about these, these documents. Um, so we're going to have a little bit more about the end of the Peninsular Campaign in the next episode because the troops have to move back and they're, they kind of hang out in the Peninsula for a while, like a month or so. Um, then we get a lot on emancipation. Um, I think the second battle bull run, maybe, um, here. Oh, we get Harry Jacobs. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, good. Um, yeah, I think good stuff coming up. Uh, got uh, four more episodes in this volume uh, to finish up 1862, and so much happens. The you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Battle of Antietam, Fredericksburg. Um, so many things. So many good things to talk about. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of bored with the battle commentary, though. But we'll see. I'll read them, and if I find something interesting, I'll let you, I'll share it with you. So, anyways, that's it for now. I will see you next time as we'll we'll dig deeper into the summer of 1862 and see uh, see what the Library of America uh, put together for us in this wonderful anthology. <laughs>